Welcome back, everyone. We have an incredible story for you this week. The story of a priceless treasure which is rumored to have been hidden in sealed caves in the Philippines by the Japanese during World War II. The story has grit, and it has its detractors, but I find it to be compelling, with more than its share of documented proof, including a famous court case which still stands as the world's most valuable civil court awarded decision. As per usual with 1001 Heroes, we will tell the story and give you both sides, let the chips fall where they may, and let you decide. A few side notes before we begin. Thanks to all of you who have been sending us reviews and referring new subscribers to us, and that applies to all of our shows, including 1001 Classic Short Stories, 1001 Stories for the Road, where we're currently doing The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, and 1001 Radio Days, where we just started a few weeks of Philip Marlowe Detective Adventures. Just last night I was enjoying some really fun hours with my son, recently returned from duty, and my son-in-law, with whom I am in an endless competition to create the perfect barbecue ribs. And the subject of work came up. I shared the fact that my 1001 Stories Network has been the most rewarding and fulfilling work I have ever done. For each 1001 hero story, I have to read from as many sources as I can find, watch as many videos and documentaries as time allows, and then create my own story, setting up the beginning, middle, and end in an order which I think creates the best entertainment and path to the climax. And everyone handles a story differently. The stories we have done at 1001, the people we've often interviewed in that process, and the response that you fans provide has been the stuff of any creator's dream. It is you listeners that make it all possible, and I really do try to provide a wide variety of stories that you will find interesting. The thousand and more reviews that our 1001 Stories Network has received in the past few years is a testament to that. Today's story, Yamashita's Gold, is a story of one man's passion to find a hidden treasure. The man, a Filipino ex-soldier named Roger Rojas, who worked as a locksmith to support his wife and kids, and as a result of always wanting something better for them, became an unstoppable prospector in the Philippines for the rumored treasure of local legend. Yamashita's gold, and he found it, but more powerful people than he wanted the treasure for themselves. When you look at the spelling of Yamashita, it looks like it should be read as Yamashita, and some documentaries do pronounce it that way. Some of the authors and researchers interviewed in those documentaries also use that pronunciation. But the majority of documentaries, as well as a search of how to pronounce that word online, suggest that the correct pronunciation is Yamashita or Yamashita, with the accent on the second syllable, mash. So that is why I pronounce it that way. Finally, this story is a legend. Some say an urban legend. And urban legends are defined as having started with a grain of truth and growing by way of word of mouth into tall tales. I firmly believe that this story starts with much more than a grain of truth. It starts with a solid gold Buddha stolen from a Burmese temple by invading Japanese and ends with thousands of little grains of truth, each grain represented by solid gold bars that ended up in the hands of Ferdinand Marcos and his wife, the brutal and incredibly wealthy rulers of the Philippines in the 70s and 80s, who, and this is a proven fact, had stashed hundreds of billions of dollars worth of wealth 
in a wide number of foreign accounts. And if you're familiar with the Philippines, that kind of wealth didn't come from there. And now, Yamashita's gold. As all of our listeners know from the story of Amelia Earhart, Japan began the Asian Pacific War, which would lead to World War II, in 1937, four and a half years before the Japanese attack on the U.S. naval fleet at Pearl Harbor. On July 7, 1937, when Japan attacked mainland China, and after that, parts of the Soviet Union, followed by Mongolia, then France's islands in the Pacific, the Dutch East Indies, India, Burma, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, the Philippines, Timor, Guam, and the list goes on. Everywhere Japan attacked, they killed, conquered, and looted everyone and everything. We hear a lot about Hitler, but Hirohito was just as evil. The loot, consisting of stolen gold, silver, artifacts, and gold artifacts, precious gems, and priceless objects of antiquity, were stolen from government mints, temples, museums, and private collections located in that huge swath of countries that Japan seized by force between 1937 and 1944. The legend and the treasure is named after the Japanese general Tomoyuki Yamashita, nicknamed the Tiger of Malaya, because it was he that was secretly appointed to hide the treasure. Though accounts that the treasure remains hidden in the Philippines have lured treasure hunters from around the world for over 50 years, its existence is still dismissed by most so-called experts. And I've read their opinions, which vary widely, by the way. Most of them are as shaky as they say the legend is. You will often hear the words rumored and alleged with regards to the treasure when you research it but those all tend to disappear when you get into the court documents and when you try to determine just where Ferdinand Marcos's billions came from and where they ended up. When his wife Imelda admitted in 1992 that their incredible wealth in the hundreds of billions was derived from the Japanese loot buried on their island, that news was quickly buried. And the micro-fact that she had amassed a collection of thousands of pairs of designer shoes was brought to the public attention in its place. The treasure was the subject of a complex lawsuit that was filed in a Hawaiian state court in 1988 involving a Filipino treasure hunter, Rogelio Rojas, the hero of our story, and the former Philippine president, Ferdinand Marcos. According to a well-researched web article by David Guyat called The Spoils of War, the story about what really happened to the loot plundered by the Nazis and the Japanese during World War II remains one of the best-kept secrets of the last 50 years. And he's right. Other than art stolen by the Nazis, you don't hear much about it. Few outside of the charm circle of initiated insiders possess any knowledge whatsoever of the true dimensions of what can be described as the biggest cover-up of all time. But it's not just public awareness of what exactly happened to this plunder in the post-war years that is the cause of supreme unease amongst the powers that be. It is the sheer magnitude of treasure forcibly confiscated by the Axis powers that causes trepidation. Were the actual dollar numbers involved to be revealed, it would lay bare an even more sensitive secret, 
one that has endured for a hundred or more years. The article continues, A decades-long propaganda campaign had served to focus public attention on the gold stolen from governments, known as monetary gold, as a means of eclipsing from public view far larger amounts of privately held gold that was also stolen. The heavy cloak of disinformation and double-talk had still another layer. By putting the spotlight on Nazi plunder from the very beginning, public attention was diverted away from the industrial-scale looting undertaken by Japan's special plunder teams known as the Golden Lily. And it's here that the real story begins. History should have recorded Japan's Prince Chichibu as the world's most ruthless and avaricious bandit of all time. Instead, it has passed him by virtually unnoticed, thanks to the onset of the Cold War and the well-laid designs of Western elites, according to this article. Prince Chichibu was the younger brother of Japan's Emperor Hirohito and had been named by the Emperor to head the ultra-secret Golden Lily, a sensitive group tasked first with looting China of all its wealth, both government and privately owned hard assets. Beginning in 1937 with the rape of Nanking, the plunder team set to work with a vengeance. The spoils were far larger than had been imagined. It is believed that 6,000 metric tons of gold, plus a bounty of silver and precious gemstones, fell into the hands of Japan's imperial treasury as a consequence. The phenomenal wealth of East and Southeast Asia had accrued over thousands of years, and Japan wanted it all. Over the next seven years, the Orient was wrung dry of its precious metals, solid gold religious artifacts, and an unbelievable quantity of gemstones. Most of this was shipped by the Japanese to the Philippines as a collecting point for onward shipment to Tokyo. However, by 1943, the sea lanes had been cut by U.S. submarines, and the decision was taken to bury the plunder throughout the Philippines. This was based on Japan's expectation of a negotiated truce that would leave them ruling the Philippines. Thereafter, the recovery of the plunder could take place in secret over many years and out of view of most, making Japan one of the wealthiest nations in the world. In addition to the Philippines, treasure plundered by the Japanese is believed to have been stashed in Indonesia, and probably Korea too. But the Philippine Islands were the key. Here, treasure sites were excavated, usually using prisoners of war as slave labor. The plunder was then stashed in these sites, and booby traps were set to deter would-be treasure hunters. With the prisoners of war still inside, the sites were sealed and disguised, leading hundreds to die a grisly death in the name of greed and secrecy. The quantity of gold and other treasure buried was phenomenal. Japanese cartographers made maps of each site, and trusted accountants marked them with three digits, signifying the yen values of the gold, diamonds, and other assets buried in each. A site bearing the designation 777, was valued at 777 billion yen. With 1945 exchange rates fluctuating between $3.50 and $4 yen to the dollar, just one 777 site was worth then almost $200 billion, a king's ransom by any measure. There were many 777 sites as well as 999 and lesser sites. Not only were these figures based on 1945 values, 
when a dollar was really a dollar, but also when the price of gold was $35 an ounce. When this research piece was written, the price of gold was 300 an ounce. As of today, it's $1,514 per ounce. But add to this the fact that in the Philippines alone, there were over 170 treasure burial sites, according to this legend. And a picture forms of a wealth so unimaginable that it almost defies belief. With the defeat of the Japanese forces in the Philippines in 1945, a project of the utmost secrecy was launched to recover the buried golden lily plunder. This is where that article switches to the theory that the recovery of the buried loot was placed under the day-to-day control of U.S. Captain Edward Lansdale and OSS operative Severino Garcia Santa Romana. In 1945, Lansdale had been ordered to Manila as part of General Willoughby's G-2 military intelligence team. On arrival, Lansdale met up with Santa Romana and set to work. And the CIA was able to find a large portion of the buried fortune, but not all of it. The article continued... Over the next few years, numerous plunder sites were located and the stolen assets recovered. The gold, gemstones, and other treasure were deposited in over 170 bank accounts spread across more than 40 countries, all of whom were signatories of the 1944 Breton Woods Agreement. Collectively, the recovered loot came to be known as the Black Eagle Trust, or Fund. So when you hear about the Black Eagle Trust conspiracy, that's where it came from. Prominent among those who have argued for the existence of Yamashita's gold are Sterling Seagrave and his wife Peggy Seagrave, who wrote two books related to the subject, The Yamato Dynasty, The Secret History of Japan's Imperial Family, that was in 2000, and Gold Warriors, America's Secret Recovery of Yamashita's Gold, that was written in 2003. The Seagraves contend that looting was organized on a massive scale by both Yakuza gangsters such as Yoshio Kodama, and the highest levels of Japanese society, including Emperor Hirohito. The Japanese government intended that loot from Southeast Asia would finance Japan's war effort. The Seagraves alleged that Hirohito appointed his brother, Prince Yasuhito Chichibu, who we mentioned previously, to head a secret organization called Kin no Yuri, or Golden Lily, for this purpose. It is purported that many of those who knew the locations of the loot were killed during the war or later tried by the Allies for war crimes and executed or incarcerated. Yamashita himself was convicted of war crimes and executed by the U.S. Army February 23, 1946, in Los Banos Laguna, in the Philippines. According to various accounts, the loot was initially concentrated in Singapore and later transported to the Philippines. The Japanese hoped to ship the treasure from the Philippines to the Japanese home islands after the war ended. As the war in the Pacific progressed, U.S. Navy submarines and Allied warplanes inflicted increasingly heavy sinkings of Japanese merchant shipping, and some of those ships were carrying war booty back to Japan and were sunk in combat. And the cost in treasure was mounting up. The few who were in control of the movement of plundered riches needed a safe place to put it, where there were few witnesses to movement, and even fewer when those who helped moving it were killed. The Philippines, with 7,000 islands, all heavily covered in jungle, were the perfect choice. And this is where we turn to the story of our hero, 
T.R. Rogelio Roger Domingo Rojas. And Rojas is spelled R-O-X-A-S. He was a former Philippine soldier who had worked as a locksmith in the Philippines in the years following World War II. The Philippines were devastated by Japanese seizure and occupation in 41 and 42, and those few who were able to survive the brutal Japanese prison camps were destined to live a life of poverty in the Philippines because all the wealth had been plundered and the people were poverty-stricken. There basically was no economy, just a day-to-day existence. Rojas, as had every Filipino, had heard the legend of the vast sums of treasure that the Japanese had supposedly buried secretly in the Philippine Islands. And finding it became a burning passion that was to guide his life in the early 70s. Rojas sought out every clue and every person that might be able to shed light on the legend, and he was often sold maps leading to the treasure location. Maps that, as you can expect, turned out to be fakes that led to nothing. One day he was handed a map with unusual markings on it. It wasn't a map with any real landmarks, but it was obviously a coded piece that showed locations of various spots, places on the map. The man who gave it to him said it had come from a Japanese soldier. The locations on the map were connected by what looked like tunnels. Where these tunnels were was left to guesswork. But Roas had a hunch, and he was smart. He started looking for caves in the area north of Manila, and he started finding things. A few gold bars, some souvenirs, swords, skeletons, but no treasure. Then a man named Osabio Okubo got in touch with Rojas, and this turned out to be the key to Rojas's success. Okubo had been an interpreter for the Japanese, working for Yamashita, and he knew of at least one tunnel location, that being in the mountains surrounding Baggio, Rojas's hometown. But he considered it bad luck to go anywhere near it, and also suspected it was booby-trapped. He was also able to interpret at least some of the other writings on Rojas's map. Ferdinand Marcos was now the law and rule in the Philippines, and although he and his wife Imelda projected a friendly image to the people, he and she were committed to finding and grabbing any spoils of war at any cost. News of the legend and news of Filipinos finding things had reached them, but the who and where had thus far not been communicated to them. So Marcos created a new law saying that anyone seeking treasure or artifacts in the Philippines must file for a permit to search. Rojas did not want to go afoul of the law of the Philippines, so he applied, not knowing that Marcos now knew where Rojas and the other treasure seekers lived and what their names were. If they were to suddenly come into wealth, Marcos would hear from his spies. And Marcos soon heard that Rojas was hiring his own team of searchers, and this was in 1970. Sometime that year, Rojas's group began digging on state lands near the Baggio General Hospital. After approximately seven months of searching and digging 24 hours a day, the group broke into a system of underground tunnels. Inside those tunnels, the group found wiring, radios, bayonets, rifles, and a human skeleton wearing a Japanese army uniform. After more months spent digging and exploring within the tunnels, Rojas had found nothing more, and he was about to give up. He returned to a cave area where he had had one of those gut hunches and gave it one last shot with his metal detector, and there was a definite buzz as he passed it over a part of the cave floor. 
very probably the sweetest sound he'd ever heard in his life. They began digging, and Rojas's group discovered a ten-foot-thick concrete enclosure buried in the floor of the tunnel. On January 24, 1971, the group broke through the enclosure. Inside, Rojas discovered a Burmese gold Buddha statue featuring the head and chest of Buddha, which he estimated to be about three feet in height. The statue was extremely heavy. It required ten men to transport it to the surface using a chain-block hoist, ropes, and rolling logs. Although he never weighed the statue, Rojas estimated its weight to be over a ton. He then directed his laborers to transport the statue to his home, where it was placed in a closet. Rojas had also found a large pile of boxes underneath the concrete enclosure, approximately 50 feet from where the Buddha statue had been discovered. He returned the next day and opened one small box, which contained 24 1-inch by 2.5-inch bars of gold. Rojas estimated that the boxes were, on average, approximately the size of a case of beer, and that they were stacked 5 or 6 feet high over an area 6 feet wide and 30 feet long. Rojas did not open any of the other boxes. The value of that treasure he found in that one location would be in the billions today. Several weeks later, and why he waited those weeks, God only knows, Rojas returned to blast the tunnel closed, planning to sell the Buddha statue in order to obtain funds for an operation to remove the remaining treasure. Before blasting the tunnel closed, Rojas removed the 24 bars of gold that he had found, as well as some samurai swords, bayonets, and other artifacts. Rojas twice attempted to report his find to Judge Marcos, who was the uncle of Ferdinand Marcos and the one controlling the permits. No coincidence there, but was unsuccessful in contacting him, probably because Rojas was a peon and the judge had better things to do. During the following weeks, Rojas sold seven of the gold bars and sought a buyer for the Golden Buddha. Rojas testified that Kenneth Cheatham, the representative of one prospective buyer, drilled a small hole under the arm of the Buddha and assayed the metal, and that test revealed the statue to be solid 22-carat gold. Rojas also testified that a second prospective buyer, Luis Mendoza, also tested the metal of the statue using nitric acid and concluded that it was more than 20 carats. Rojas took a picture of himself crouching next to the gold Buddha, which, of course, all the naysayers say was fake, and it survives today on the web, so we placed the picture up at Facebook's 1001 Heroes page. Well, as the story goes, the judge got wind of Marco selling a few gold bars and sent a group of thugs to Rojas's home, and they tore his place apart, taking the gold Buddha and his remaining gold bars and leaving his home in shambles and his wife devastated but making Ferdinand and Imelda very happy to have some tidbits to add to their collection. But if Marcos thought he had scared Rojas enough with that, he was wrong, and Marcos, not trusting the police, went to the media. And they skewered Marcos, not only on this, but on the fact that proof had been discovered that Marcos had fixed the last election, giving himself two million votes that he'd never really had. This really burned Ferdinand and Imelda, who sent a death squad to find Rojas and bring him in for questioning so they could find out how he had found the treasure and where it was. And they still held the power, so the police were not an option for Rojas. 
So they starved Rojas, then tortured him, first with the burning ends of cigarettes, then with electrocution, and got him to sign an affidavit revealing the location of the gold. And then they slapped him in prison. Just before they rounded him up and took him to prison, Marcos had ordered the building of a very similar Buddha, but this time made out of bronze and covered with gold paint. The plan? To arrange a big presser featuring shots of Rojas with his Buddha for public consumption, and announced that Marcos had given it back to him, showing what a kind and generous family the Marcos were. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. And that's how it all went down when they released a broken Rojas and let him return to his coveted fake Buddha. But wouldn't you know that stubborn Rojas was saying, This isn't the Buddha I found. This is a cheap imitation. But no one was listening. And it wasn't until after his release when Rojas died under suspicious circumstances, creating the impression that he might have been murdered, that people started to wonder, hmm. Then came a lawsuit asserted by Rojas's estate and the Golden Buddha Corporation, a company formed for the purpose of asserting Rojas's rights to the treasure. In 1996, a jury in Honolulu awarded $22 billion, yep, $22 billion, the largest lawsuit of its kind ever, in compensatory damages that, after the jury verdict, increased with interest to over $40 billion. The jury did not award punitive damages. But there were still friends of Ferdinand and Milda out there, especially in Hawaii, where Marcos had been exiled to after the 1986 Philippine Revolution that had removed him from power. On November 17, 1998, the Hawaiian Supreme Court reversed the $42 billion judgment against Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos. A Justice Department statistical bulletin on civil verdicts claims that the court found insufficient evidence that Rojas had actually discovered the gold bullion while treasure hunting north of Manila in 1971. However, the actual judicial decision of the court only cites insufficient evidence to establish the quantity and quality of the gold bullion found and left in the concrete chamber. Says the report, There was insufficient evidence to support an award of damages for such gold bullion as may have been contained in the unopened boxes allegedly found by Rojas, inasmuch as the record was speculative regarding the gold's quantity and purity. What a crock! That court decision possibly engineered by the CIA, which by that time very likely had become the inheritors of the buried treasure. A little more on that conspiracy theory in a few minutes. 
Furthermore, the court sustained the portion of the verdict that found that Marcos had stolen the golden Buddha and 17 bars of gold. The 24 bars Rojas took out of the chamber, minus the seven that he sold. With respect to this claim, the Hawaii Supreme Court specifically found as follows. 1. There was sufficient evidence to support the jury's special finding that Ferdinand converted the treasure that Rojas found. And 2. There was sufficient evidence to support the jury's determination that Rojas had found the treasure pursuant to Philippine law. The case was remanded to the trial court for a new trial on the value of the converted Golden Buddha statue and gold bars. And on February 28th, the trial court conducted a hearing to determine the value of the Golden Buddha and the 17 bars of gold. Currently, Felix Desanay, as personal representative of the Rojas' estate, has a judgment against Imelda Marcos in her personal capacity to the extent of her interest in the estate of Ferdinand E. Marcos in the principal amount of $6 million for the human rights claims concerning Rojas' arrest and torture. And the Golden Buddha Corp. has a judgment against Imelda Marcos in her personal capacity to the extent of her interest in the Marcos estate in the principal amount of $13,275,848 on the claim of the converted treasure. That judgment was ordered affirmed by Hawaii Supreme Court on November 25, 205. In a related legal proceeding in 2006, the United States Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal, while describing the findings of the Rojas v. Marcos litigation, stated, The Yamashita treasure was discovered by Rojas and stolen from Rojas by Marcos men. Rojas turned over claims to the treasure to a group of American investors, which filed suit in Hawaii. A jury awarded $22 billion to an American company that claims the late Philippine president Ferdinand E. Marcos stole a golden Buddha statue filled with gems from a treasure hunter. Quote, as far as I know, it is the largest verdict probably in the history of jurisprudence in the world. End quote. Said Daniel Cathcart, attorney for the Atlanta-based Golden Buddha Corp. But a Marcos family attorney dismissed the award, which a state jury reached in less than five hours of deliberations. Quote, it's non-collectible. It's monopoly money. End quote. Attorney James Paul Lynn said, Everything in the Marcos estate is tied up by the Philippine government, and there is no money there. And the fix was in on the Buddha statue. Judge Antonio Reyes of the Baggio Regional Trial Court had declared in a ruling on May 30, 1996, that the Golden Buddha was only a bronze-plated statuette. In fact, it was in the court's custody in Baggio. The U.S. court decision implies that the Golden Buddha existed. I don't know how the conclusion was arrived, the judge said. The statuette in the court's custody was surrendered by police days after Roger complained that his Golden Buddha had been seized by Marcos, and this one delivered in its place. But Rojas had died in 1993. His relatives claimed that the statuette that was returned to his family was a replica, a cheap fake. In 1995, Rojas's eldest son, Jose, petitioned the court to release the statuette to him, at least as a memento of his father's treasure hunting. It has been one legal battle after another now for 50 years. Let's review a few points about Yamashita's gold story. Regarding Operation Golden Lily, although evidence fails to show such a program existed with that name, the basic idea makes sense. Japan's imperial war efforts were incredibly expensive, 
and Japan had little wealth of its own. Japanese armies did indeed seize valuables and plunder national treasuries of southeastern Asian countries. In fact, researchers speculate that the war booty amassed by the Japanese between 37 and 45 may well represent the largest stolen treasure ever amassed. Regarding the Black Eagle Trust Fund that some say the CIA set up to distribute the relocated wealth to various allies and countries, evidence also fails to show that any such program existed with that name. But who knows? Such a thing is well proven to be one way that intelligence agencies move funds around. However, that's a far cry from the claim that the U.S. filled this one with Japanese gold from the Philippines after World War II. And so, while we all love a story of lost gold and would thrill to plunge a shovel into a green hillside that we suspect conceals an endless fortune, the urban legend of Yamashita's gold is another one of those most unlikely to have a happy ending. Some will enjoy it as fiction. Others will wonder, because this is one urban legend that has more than just a grain of truth involved. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. History and legend, and more great stories to come. Please do take a moment and show your love by visiting our page at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network, where our supporters pledge a few dollars every month to keep us going. And we still have a long way to go to make it to 1001 Stories. If you haven't subscribed yet to Apple Podcast App, or any one of 50 Android podcast apps, they're all free. I like podbay.fm and castbox.fm and stitcher.com, but there are many. Your subscription not only makes it easy to listen to us, but every time someone subscribes to our show, that subscription is counted and helps us to rise in the rankings. And rankings is how people find us. So subscribe, review, and tell a friend. By the way, you are the greatest fans in the world. We'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time with a brand new story at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. If you think we did, prove it. And so far, despite hundreds of court cases, no one really has. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about your shoes. They found no skeletons in my closet. They found beautiful shoes made in the Philippines. <laughs> Imelda is back, loud, proud, and beautifully shod. And she does appear to be genuinely popular with some Filipinos. The Philippines government has seized more than 400 million pounds from accounts in Switzerland. But the puzzle of her remaining riches is locked up in bewildering legal cases and contested documents. Let's look at this. This is only so this one. is an envelope with Belgium on the front of it. The mysteries. What could this be? So this is some sort of treasury certificate. It's a slightly fuzzy. <laughs> no, you don't anymore because this is dangerous already. <laughs> no way. Look. If only I had a photographic memory, I could tell you what it was. Yeah, but well, it's well, no, all right. We can't show you. Yes, <laughs> But it shows deposits in the name of Ferdinand Marcos mm -hmm. in a bank in Brussels, <laughs> and it's for nine. It's for nine hundred and eighty-seven billion dollars. Nine hundred. Can we show the camera? No, <laughs> Such a huge sum surely can't be genuine. 
But with Imelda, who knows? Like armies of lawyers, I failed to unravel the mystery of Imelda's billions. This is shallow waters. But I did get a very interesting and very long presentation on her plans to end poverty and build a tunnel through the Philippines that would solve the world's trade problems. Uh, he had already uh, quite a stash of, of precious metals. And you, did you really discover it because he used to cover the gold in lead and he... he uh, it was really... The, the, old, the old gold was... The old gold bullion was covered with lead. Right. And, and the, the walls of the house that the he house, moved in yes. were built, were made out of this stuff? Yes. And, is and then I, I, I tore it down, not knowing what was in there, uh, because I wanted the house to be, to be um, spacious. So one day...